Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Terry Baskin from RX Results. Terry, welcome. Well, thank you, Michael. Good morning to you as well. All right. Great to have you on the show. So uh, our game plan for today is really to, you know, have a good discussion and, and uh, you know, really talk about what's what's wrong with healthcare and, and offer our audience uh, some ideas on alternative methods to lower their healthcare costs and, uh, and improve value for their employees. So sound like something you'd like to help with? Well, it sounds like a, a good conversation. Looking forward to participating. All right. Great. To get us started here, I'm going to read a brief bio about you and RX results uh, so the audience has some context, and then we'll jump into the interview. So Terry Baskin is founder, president, and CEO of RX results. Prior to RX results, Terry served as the chief operating officer and chief medical officer for NMHC, which is now Catamaran and I believe owned by Optum, um, a publicly traded PBM based in New York. And his pharmacy career has included uh, a number of roles, including serving as president of a PBM, pharmacy associates, owning three community pharmacies, uh, serving on boards, as well as other leadership roles at the state and national pharmacy associations and federal task force related to healthcare reform. Terry currently serves as treasurer and trustee of the American Pharmacists Association. And Terry has a BS and a pharmacy degree from the University of Arkansas for medical sciences. Does that, uh, that, that about capture you? That captured a lot of it. Uh, one correction I would make that CMO acronym actually in this case stands for chief marketing officer, not chief medical officer. So ah, gotcha. I don't want to confuse anybody, but that's the worst thing that happens today. We both had a good day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so Terry, you've, you've done a lot of different things in your career. Um, how did you get into the, the healthcare and, and pharmacy industry, and, and re- what really motivated you to start this company? One of the things that was kind of the impetus for getting me started in this, this area was uh, two of my mentors back in the mid-'80s. One was a professor at the College of Pharmacy at the University of Arkansas, and the other was the director of our State Board of Pharmacy. And they believed that there was a, a better way to take care of patients and look after the needs of the person paying the bill for that health care than what the you know, traditional way was doing it, status quo, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so they put together a, a new model that you know, did things differently than status quo. And they, they asked me as a young, well, probably 32-year-old uh, pharmacist if I would help operationalize their vision. And so we started down that path in, I think, 1986. Uh, we formed a, a PBM here in Arkansas. That PBM was doing some things in different ways. We were there again. We we were not interested in being a small version of the status quo model. So we had a lot of new programs, new ideas that we put in place. We produced some significant outcomes and results that were different than what the status quo model was producing, and that launched us down a path of growth. and In the summer of 2000, we sold that company to NMHC, which was home office in. Um, Long Island in New York. And so for the next seven years, I spent three weeks a month in New York, commuted back and forth from here. And that was in those those two roles as chief operating officer at first. And in 2004, I moved over to the chief marketing officer position. 
after doing that, I came back to Arkansas and still had this desire to be in this, you know, and we call it risk management space around pharmacy benefits. Mm-hmm. And so our our College of Pharmacy had developed an evidence-based prescription drug program, acronym EBRX, in 2004. And we had worked very closely with them on one of our large clients, one state employee client. And so that new model was, again, a new way of doing some things different from status quo. And that saved the state of Arkansas roughly $100 million the first four years of that program. And that got a lot of people's attention. Um, certainly the, the chancellor at the med, med center where the pharmacy college is located asked the dean of the College of Pharmacy if there was something that she could do to make this new model available to the private sector and you know beyond the borders of Arkansas, those types of things. So they looked at that for a, for a period of time, and I think they came to the realization that the, that the college's core competency was really the, the clinical foundation, not necessarily the, you know, the analytics and the technology and the sales and marketing and all those things that you have to you know, wrap sure. around that. So anyway, I did a, a consulting engagement for the college, and at the end of that process, ended up, I formed RX results, and we have a very close working relationship with the university. We've got a master services agreement, and they provide that clinical foundation to RX results, and then we've added all those other pieces around it. So anyway, that's what got us here, and... And I'll, I'll say one thing, and this is a significant piece of this, and we'll may talk about this a couple of different times, but the reason that the company was named RX Results is that we want our clients to focus on the results or the outcomes, if you will. And those results could be certainly the cost and the savings that we can produce for them. The clinical impact on a patient is probably the most important thing in the equation. And then what we call the member of the patient experience. You know, how easy is this to use and to understand, you know, on behalf of the, you know, the insured employee or their family? Because all three of those things are are equally important. Your proverbial three-legged stool, if you will. Sure. So those are the outcomes that that we want people to focus on. And I would say that one of the biggest problems with pharmacy benefits as a whole is they have been made to be so complicated that there's. I don't think there's anybody that understands the totality of what's going on. You know, I've been doing this for for 30 years now. I know a lot about it, and I've you know seen a lot of different you know variations in that. But there are things that I learn about this. You know, every week somebody tells me something else that's going on that was a either a beneficial thing or maybe it was a smokescreen. You know, to, sometimes it seems like to purposely confuse people. But but anyway, I we look at that, and if you think of it as a as a mathematic equation. You know, the left side of the equal sign is all of these things that go on, whether it's rebates and admin fees and networks and closed networks and just you know spread pricing and all of that stuff over there produces something. But but understanding the left side, that's real complicated. Now, the right side of that equal sign produces some results that are really pretty easy to measure. You know, a, a plan's cost per member per month. You know, it's just about as simple a calculation as there is. You spend X amount of money this month. You have X number of people covered. You know, divide the two, and there's your there's your per member per month cost. So you can take a metric like that, and you can see how your cost is changing over time. And you don't really need anybody to help you do that math, if you will. So there are some some things like that 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 are very simple, but they are on the right side of that equal sign. So we always try to get people to think about the results 
and look at the right side of that equal sign. And a big part of what we do is to try to get to understand you know, what our clients or prospects would like to have the right side of the equal sign be. You know, so what, what goals and objectives and outcomes are important to them. And then our job is to put together solutions that, that meet those goals and objectives in a way that's good for the, you know, for the plan and also for the patient as well. So anyway, that's okay. a lot about what got me here, but that's, that's kind of where, where we are. I love it. That's great. That's great background. I really liked simply because I'm a visual person. I like the, the simple analogy of the equal sign. You know, there's all this stuff going on to the left of it and to the right, you know, what, what we see is results, you know, as a, as a broker consultant working with our clients, we see the PMPMs increase every year. Right. Um, and that corresponds with increases in, in medical, uh, PMPMs, uh, and, and that result is, you know, higher healthcare costs that, you know, greatly outpace inflation. And so, you know, we have this PBM industry, this, this pharma industry that, and PBMs alone generate over $300 billion in revenue annually. And, um, you know, I, I think the prescription drug uh, component of healthcare, as you alluded to, is one of the most misunderstood components of healthcare, and it's, and it's incredibly complex. So before we jump into RX results, um, in your opinion, you know, um, you've been doing this for a while, you know, what do you think is uh, wrong with our healthcare system today, um, as well as with the prescription drug component of healthcare? Well, <clears throat> let's see, what do we have, three, three days to cover that, so we'll, <laughs> we'll get started right away. <laughs> you know, certainly, I mean, even from a national perspective, you know, we as a country have concluded that what we're doing relative to health care cost is not sustainable you know for the for the country for private industries for the individuals that have the health care coverage we've certainly undertaken a major transformation of that with the affordable care act and we're going to have a um, probably a repeal and replace or maybe repeal and repair maybe what it turns out to be you know there's and and i, I don't want to get into the the good or the bad of either one of those models but but all of those major initiatives are being undertaken because there's a problem with the healthcare model. You know, we all agree on that, how we go about doing that. Um, you know, there's obviously a wide variety of opinions, but I don't think anybody disagrees that what we're doing now is not what we need to be doing two years from now and certainly not, you know, five or ten years from now. So if you start there and start looking at what's wrong, and I'll kind of focus most of this on pharmacy, I think one of the one of the issues, and I touched on that in my intro, the the, you know, the math equation, the right side of the equal sign, I do think that there has been way too much attention focused on that left side of the equal sign. And I would use an example of a, you know, an analysis and a consulting engagement which led to a new business model for the company I was with in New York. We, we took a look at the, <clears throat> at the contracts of 20 large union trust funds, and we looked also then at their outcomes, their, you know, their costs and generic rates and you know, all, all of the different things that we were measuring. There were some assumptions, and, there, and are, there are assumptions to this day that think if you get a bigger discount on the cost of the prescription, well, you'll save money. You know, if you do, you know, if you get bigger rebates, you're going to save money. If you have a lower admin fee, you're going to save money. And so those are just intuitive. You know, if you ask 100 people on the street, if you get a bigger discount, are you going to save money? Most of them would say, well, of course. Well, when we looked at those companies and we blinded all of this and we you know, would put their big discounts in there and we would put the final results, you know, average prescription price and, you know, those kind of things. And it was amazing 
that there was an inverse relationship in many times that the people with the biggest discounts sometimes were paying the highest prices for the products. People right. with the biggest rebates were paying the highest prices. So, you know, you, if you take those couple of simple, you know, observations, how is a typical buyer going to navigate through this? And so that, there's just some problems in that. So one of the things that as you start breaking it down, you start looking at some of this. And I, and I would say that one of the biggest problems is the and – and this – None of what I'm going to say is is to bash anybody or to you know condemn anybody at, at all. There are really good people in all of these sectors. There are smart people doing it. But I think over time we have evolved to a place that what we're doing just absolutely doesn't make sense. Maybe each individual decision made sense at the time. Where we've arrived at, it just it is just so mixed up. It just doesn't make any sense. And part of that is that the the pharmaceutical manufacturer that makes the product are probably some of the best marketing people in the world. You know, they have a very, very successful model. They provide a lot of value to a lot of patients, a lot of innovation, but they're also very good at what they do of telling their story. You know, for years they've told their story to the people that write prescriptions, and those people write those prescriptions, and it works very well for the pharma company. But most prescribers don't have a direct line of sight into you know, all of the other costs or all the other choices within a therapeutic class, they certainly don't have much idea of what those things cost. And that's not a you know slam on the prescribers, but they, they just don't have time to it. You know, the Academy of Family Physicians did a survey a few years ago, and some 70% of the physicians you know, surveyed said that they had no idea what drugs cost. And about 80% of them didn't feel like it was their responsibility to know that. Now, you know, you could argue that either way, but, but the reality is they, they didn't have that. It's one of the big reasons that physicians and accountable care organizations are struggling today and concerned about how they're going to mitigate this new risk they have, you know, when they've moved away from fee-for-service to some kind of a performance-based outcome. So I say that, that the pharma companies have done this, and then they've, with, with, with the prescribers, and then they've added direct-to-consumer advertising, you know, several years ago. Mm-hmm. The amount of money spent on direct-to-consumer advertising for the last several years has has been more than drug companies spend on you know trying to talk to physicians or other prescribers about it. They wouldn't do that if it wasn't effective. And so, information to the patient is a good thing, but sometimes you you know you you get some false illusions created about things, and you certainly you may think I want the benefit of that drug. What you don't know is what other drugs might be available that are either more effective, have less side effects, or cost less. So that that whole making a selection of the drug product based on the marketing from the drug company and rebates to PBMs are, in my estimation, just another avenue of marketing to the drug companies. And you know, today there is a there's been a real big increase in the amount of rebates available to plans, and it's and it's being driven by closed formularies. I mean, hospitals and HMOs have used closed formularies for, for years. That's relatively new, certainly in a broad basis, you know, with self-insured employers and you know, folks like that. So now when they're getting this, and I, and I see the analysis that gosh, your rebates can go from, you know, from X to you know, 1.5 times X or, you know, whatever it may be. And so that's a it, it draws folks' attention over there, and you, and you think, well, we've been getting – you know, make up a number here, $500,000 a year in rebates, and now we're going to get 750000 Well, that's a great thing, and we're going to save money. 
but they're passing over you know that because if you're going to go from brand drug A to a therapeutic equivalent, you know brand drug B, so you can get more rebates. Well, why wouldn't you spend some time seeing if there's a generic drug C, if you will, that's also a therapeutic equivalent to both A and B, but maybe it costs. $25 a month, and the other two cost over $200 a month. Well, the reason that those are not promoted from the marketing standpoint is there are no rebates on the generics. So, and this this sounds kind of tacky, and maybe I shouldn't say it, but it, mm-hmm. it, it reminds me of the illusionist or the magician. You know, they draw your attention to their right hand up here with some shiny object while the magic is going on elsewhere. <laughs> and that's the way it feels to me sometimes. Let's draw your attention to these big rebates. But what's going on over here is that we're getting these big rebates because the products cost more than other choices. So we're trying to pay you rebates so you'll use our product. So anyway, that whole area of making decisions based on marketing, I think, is a is a big, big problem. And, the, you know, the chasing rebates, most people you know, have heard that term enough that they they react negatively and say, well, we're not interested in doing that with our plan. But then they don't recognize that these closed formularies that are being put out there are nothing more than chasing rebates. But, you know, it's just – anyway, that's kind of it's just sort of the new iteration of it. So yeah, no, and I, I think what you're getting at and I think what you very eloquently just described there is misaligned incentives. Exactly, exactly. Where, where you've got, uh, you know, the <laughs> – the uh, the fox guarding the hen house, so to speak, and um, you know the drug manufacturers, um, you know, trying to you know get the focus on rebates, um, when really what we should be focused on is lowest net cost. Yep, you're right. And and I think um, it's very challenging, even from you know from the standpoint of a, of a, you know broker consultant, you know, trying to do you know due diligence on behalf of our clients to really get to what. The lowest net cost is, um, given that there's just not a lot of transparency around any vendor's um, drug acquisition cost. You know, the whole the whole model is, hey, here are our discounts off of a fictional benchmark, and you know, here are the rebates that will guarantee you. And that method of you know analysis, so to speak, is imperfect. Because just like you said, it is like it's shining, uh, you know, look at the, look at the shiny object up here. Um, and, it, and I think it does distract us from, from lowest net cost, which is really what everyone should be focused on. You know, there's, I know when I first got into this business, our, our contract with our clients was probably, oh, I don't know, five, six, seven pages long. And that covered everything that needed to be covered in the contract. Uh, <clears throat> I was looking at a contract for what has now become a client of ours down in Texas, and they wanted us to review the contract and you know see if there were any things, observations that we had that would be useful to them. Well, the contract and the two addendums that they had were, were 115 pages long. Now, I would just say that if you don't have any legal background whatsoever, you understand, you know that a 115-page contract is not necessary, and it probably means there's a lot of if you will, fine print or, you know, there's an asterisk here and a definition and another part and a reference to this, and you have to look at it over here. <clears throat> I mean, to go through that whole thing and to understand, you know, what what's going on. <clears throat> so the prospect that I was talking to about this said, well, you know, they're, they're doing all this. You know, they, they shouldn't be able to do that. You know, they shouldn't do this. Maybe we should get an auditor in here. And I said, I, 
I'm very confident that they're not violating anything in their contract. I said, now, I would also say there are a lot of things that are going on in this plan that are not in your best interest or your employee's best interest. But but I'm very comfortable <clears throat> saying that they're not violating this contract, but they wrote the contract. <laughs> and, 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 they, and they, they're not doing it. And they, they know it'll withstand the test of an audit or even a, you know, a court case because they wrote that. So one of my mentors told me a long time ago, he who writes it down wins. And, you know, if you, if you write, they write the contract and then you read it and think you understand it and you understand certain things about it. But it, that's just an example of it's been made more complicated than it needs to be. So that's, that's a big problem. That's, um, that's something that needs to change. You know, well, you use, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say complexity in the healthcare system is, is a theme on this show. And, you know, you just gave a, a nice example of, of that. You know, if a, if a contract is that long, you can guarantee it's set up, you know, in such a way that you're going to lose. Yep. No question about it. You know, you use the expression <clears throat> fox guarding the hen house, and that's actually the <clears throat> a good segue into the second point I was going to make under the heading of what's wrong. You know, the cost of specialty pharmaceuticals is as big a concern as I've ever encountered, you know, since I've been in this. You know, the the drugs are very potent, very powerful. In lots of cases, they're doing life-saving things and, you know, adding quality of life. They're, you know, really, really good products in lots of cases. There's has been a tendency that if somebody has this disease and can be helped, gosh, we want to do everything we can to help them, so we'll prescribe this. And one of the one of the issues that we've gotten into, and some of this is even being fueled by the direct-to-consumer advertising. You know, they make very emotional pleas, and I, and I don't, I do not discount the value to the patient at all. But I think that when you have a process in place where the prior authorization process is being done and the determination of medical necessity is being done. You know, that that's that should happen. You know, it needs to be, it's appropriate that someone reviews that to be sure that this drug is a good match for, you know, this patient with this disease and this, you know, severity of disease and treatment history and you know those, all those things need to be part of that. But if the person doing the prior authorization pr- approves it and then they fill the prescription at their specialty pharmacy, that's a conflict of interest. And I would say that's how 95% of the prior authorization programs are being done today. The PBM does the prior authorization, they approve it, <clears throat> then it goes to their specialty pharmacy to be filled. Now, that that's, makes as much sense as letting a hospital, you know, administer the pre-certification program for hospital admissions. I mean, no, nobody would do that. And I sure. think a lot, of, a lot of employers and certainly a lot of brokers and consultants are looking at that and saying, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it is that fox guarding the hen house. And then you think, well, what are my alternatives? And I'd say three or four years ago, there really weren't very many alternatives. But if you look at it today, you know, I can name six companies off the top of my head that have been formed to specifically address that issue. You know, there are that many more, and a lot of these are apps, if you will, that people that are coming up to help people address and give people a line of sight into the cost of drugs. Some of those are based on the pharmacy price. Some of them are based on the PBM contract itself. You know, in our in our case, it happens to be more on the therapeutic you know, alternatives. But but I just say that that all of those things, all those companies, have been formed to address the same problem. You know, the cost of drugs and the increases in them are not sustainable, and so people are you know, are looking to do something different. So that 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 prior authorization process, I think, is fueling a lot of the cost increases 
you know, relatives, especially drugs. Let's talk about one thing that you mentioned. You mentioned it's a conflict of interest, but I want to make sure everyone who's listening understands why it's potentially a conflict of interest. If a PBM owns the specialty pharmacy, that's an additional distribution channel for them. Right. And they're, they're going to make a margin any of the drugs that flow through that specialty pharmacy. Right. And they should. And so, That's appropriate. Yeah. But, you know, it may not be the lowest cost option out there. And so, you know, if they're, um, well, I'll let you, you why, explain a little bit, you know, why it would be a conflict of interest. Um, the, the conflict of interest comes from, you know, you, you can say, this patient, you know, or this specialty drug is used for patients with this diagnosis. Okay, you know, that's, that's true. You know, FDA approval, FDA looks at safety and efficacy. FDA does not compare this new drug application to an existing therapy. They certainly don't look at the cost of the therapy. So if your prior approval process is built around FDA approval, then you can, with a straight face, say, this patient has this condition, and it's indicated for that, and it's safe, and it's effective, by the, deemed so by the FDA. So when a physician writes a prescription for it, absolutely, we should cover it. So they cover it, especially pharmacy fills it, and they make you know five, $6,000 a month or $90,000 or you know for 12 weeks of hepatitis C therapy, whatever the cost is. Now, if you back up a step and say when you're developing that coverage criteria, if you say, yes, that drug was safe and effective. But, you know, there are some traditional therapies that are also safe and effective, and they cost $200 as opposed to $6,000 a month. There are patients that in their initial stages of the disease, you know, if, if 50% of the people with this disease don't ever progress to the point of having any negative health effects, well, then they don't need that drug. If the progression starts to happen, the clinical indicators and the lab tests and all that indicate that they are progressing, well, they may need that specialty drug. They may need an alternative therapy. But all of those are things that need to be wrapped up into that. If, if you own the specialty pharmacy and your objective is to drive as many, you know, as much revenue as you can to that pharmacy, doing your own PAs is a really good way to do it. Now, <clears throat> we had a case two weeks ago where a client, and it was, we were talking actually to their broker, and about a particular drug, and they said, well, how often do you all approve this? Now, this particular drug was initially approved for orphan status. Very, very few people will ever need it. And then they've started finding out it has some effect on some other conditions, so they're promoting it for that. And so the, the broker contacted the three PBMs that they worked with, three of the PBMs they work with, and their approval rates went from 40% to like 60-something percent, and then the highest one was just over 90% of the time that they approved those drugs. This drug has such a limited use and no benefit on these other, you know, and other you know, diseases that it's good for, but it has no benefit, and maybe it's not even as good as other drugs are. We approve that drug 3% of the time, and that's for that real small case. It's a pediatric indication, and those kids need that drug. But in our estimation, 97% of the time that those are prescribed, it's not needed. So those approvals lead to a drug that costs about $30,000 a month. And if it's not appropriate most of the time, you can just see that that does a lot of good for your for your revenue. And and I would I would just ask anybody that's curious about this, go listen in on the recordings of the earnings calls from the publicly traded PBMs you know, over the last 
two or three years, those earnings calls, and I've done a bunch of them myself, those are a company's attempt to say, we would like for you to focus on this thing that we're doing. We believe this is going to drive revenue, increase earnings, and to you, the investors out there, this would be a good reason we'd like for you to buy our stock and our stock price will go up. The number one topic on most of those calls for the last couple of years has been driving earnings by increasing specialty pharmacy revenue. You know, they've opened their own specialty pharmacies. They've bought other specialty pharmacies. They've tried to get exclusive distribution contracts from their customers. You know, they offer bigger discounts for doing that, and they want to control every bit of that. Do the PAs so they can drive their earnings per share. So it's it's the area that the you know you know it's, and I'll just say it like I feel the PBMs are focused on making the, the growth of their earnings based on increased specialty pharmacy revenues. And I would say this, and I've said this in several talks over the last few months, that model is working very, very well for the PBM. Sure is. It's it's not working so well for the person paying the bill. And there are alternatives to it. Some of those companies that I've mentioned, several that I could think of that are out there doing an independent prior authorization process, there are alternatives out there. But it requires someone and then... You know, we're we're having conversations with a number of brokers, and most most brokers are very very interested in looking out for the needs of their clients. This is a situation that's been made very complicated, but when they realize that if you if you can move to an independent review of that, you just has to have to ask a question. And I did a presentation at a healthcare symposium three weeks ago, and I posed that question. I said, "Why would a why would a PBM resist?" somebody else being an independent group that does the PAs, if they're still going to be able to fill all the prescriptions that are approved. And they said, well, the only reason they would disagree with that is if it's going to cost them money. So so the assumption there is that that our PA process will approve less than theirs will. And that's, and that's why they would resist. So I would just contend to anybody that's listening to this, the more a PBM pushes back on having an independent group do the PAs, the more you should be concerned about them doing the PAs. If, if there's not a problem, they'd say, well, sure, it doesn't matter to us, and we're happy to do that service, but you know, if, if you want to use somebody independent, we'll cooperate and do whatever we can to make this as smooth as possible. You know, in a case like that, they're probably not doing anything. <laughs> so anyway, that's just yep, an observation. Yep. But well, that hey, is that, something everybody's concerned about is the cost of specialty drug. Well, and that's <clears throat> I think that's a great segue into my next question. I mean, what, you, what you're talking about is, you know, Really, something that's very hard to compare when you're evaluating, you know, pharmacy benefit, you know, managers or administrators out there. And so, let's talk about your company. Let's talk about RX Results and what the product and service that you offer is, and and um, you know how that helps an employer with some of the things that we just talked about. Okay. Well, one of the things that's a significant part of this model that we have. And there again, I'm not, I don't have my white hat on right now, but but this is, in all seriousness, is a very, very significant part. Our only revenue stream comes from our client, whoever's bearing the risk, you know, the cost of the pharmacy benefit. We don't make anything from the drug company or from the PBM, and that, that doesn't make people that do bad people. But for our model, it's it's important that 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 we only have that single revenue stream. You know, we believe that it's difficult to serve more than one master, and we think if you end up, you know, getting paid from two things and you start rationalizing and saying, well, yeah, it really is not going to make that much difference. And you, when you start down that slippery slope, it's really a big problem. So that's that's one thing that we do. Now, the services that we do offer, 
Um, one is in the area of the selection of the drug products, you know, a formulary management program, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we've got a mandatory way that we can put this in where we identify, well, this is the part of that clinical platform that the university does for us. We've got about, oh, it's over 400 what we call targeted drugs, where it's a brand name drug that there is a lower cost generic alternative that's a therapeutic equivalent. Mm-hmm. It's not the generic of, of that brand, but it's a generic of another product that does the same thing as that brand. So we've got, <clears throat> like I say, a little over 400 of those drugs. So we look in the you know, claims file, and we can identify everyone that's taking it, and we can give you an assessment of what you would save if you did this. Uh, we frequently use reference pricing as a way to, to drive this. So if the member wants the more expensive brand, they can have it, but they'll pay the difference because the employer is only going to pay the same amount regardless of which of those two drugs you get. It's it's kind of like mandatory generic programs that have been around for 20 years now, that if you want the expensive brand instead of the generic of that product, you can have it, but you'll pay the difference. So we're doing that same thing, except it's on therapeutic equivalents, not just straight generic equivalents. That program will save, save an employer typically... 12 to 17 percent of their total total pharmacy spend. It also saves the employees a lot. And you know the purpose of this is not to cost shift to the employee. You know, the purpose of that reference pricing is to make that difference enough that it causes the employee to stop and say, "Wow, I need I need to spend a little time or effort to have my pharmacist call the doctor or call my own doctor and see if they'll prescribe this other drug." Um, and so that's that's a one thing that we do. If somebody doesn't want to do use the reference pricing, we can take that same targeted approach, and we've got a, a, a digital strategy, um, an app, if you will, so that the employee can put in their drug name into the um, program, and it'll tell them what the therapeutic alternatives are and what the what the differences in price are. You know, if they're in the doctor's office and with a new prescription, they can pull their phone out and you know do the same thing from their phone. So that that doesn't have any penalty associated with it, but it is information for the consumer so that they can find out the most cost-effective choice. And we're getting a lot of interest in that in folks that have high deductible plans. You know, if you have a $2,500 deductible and you're spending 200 bucks a month, <clears throat> well, you know, you you could easily be you know seven, eight, nine months into the year before you you know that drug and your doctor visits would get you even to the deductible. If you use our program and realize there was a $25 alternative, well, you can go all year and only spend 300 bucks on that. Well, then you can take that money that's left in your health savings account and roll that in the next year. Well, you know, after a couple of years, you've got enough money in your HSA. You might even go to a, you know, $5,000 deductible because you wouldn't be exposed because of the money in HSA. So that information on the cost of the drugs is a, is a big core part of what we do. And then we talked earlier about the, the specialty pharmacy prior authorization program that we've got, mm-hmm. and that's a that gets more conversation. And if if we if we start a discussion with someone with specialty, we never get around to the formulary part. <laughs> it's just there's so much concern and interest about specialty, but that is another thing that we have. And we we also we've built our technology platform in a way that we can. We can launch our programs in a variety of ways. You know, we can be freestanding, contract directly with an employer. We can be part of a more comprehensive model where our data you know, feeds you know, a bigger analytics package. 
or we can work with a, an ACO or an ACO-like organization, and we can help the physicians or the prescribers that have this new risk. You know, we, we can tell them more cost-effective choices, so they, you know, they'll know that they'll have that information. Uh, we can put in a prior approval process for them. You know, if they're at risk for the total mm-hmm. total you know, healthcare outcome, certainly pharmacy is a part of it. Well, they don't they don't want to be prescribing, you know, six thousand dollar a month drugs that that aren't necessary, you know, because now that they're on the hook for that, you know, one of their things they're on the hook for is quality for sure, but also on the cost. So we can help a, you know, a physician group mitigate their newfound risk. So that's really our core of what we're doing now. And like I said, we can launch this in a couple of ways, and we're beginning some discussions just recently about um, putting our intellectual property into somebody else's business processes and their proposal generation so that they actually, you know, have the effect and the benefit of us and they can do it, you know, without us really doing much of anything. We're just embedding, you know, our information into their system and it becomes part of their proposal. So sure. that's something so, we're doing. So let me let me repeat what I, you know, think I heard as far as far as the core services. I mean really it's formulary management, right. um, the specialty prior authorization service. Right. And and also a service where for you know medical groups who are now in the position of of taking on risk, you know helping their uh, physicians with um, you know prescribing cost effective medic medications, um, you know when appropriate. Yep, you, you captured it pretty well. Okay, great. Now um, I think that's great. And I think, you know, two things that, you know, are going to be of interest to an employer is one, the savings, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a visual person. And so I always like examples. And so when, when, when speaking with, uh, your colleague LG, um, you know, he had given me some, a, a couple examples that just really drove home the, the concept and the opportunity. And so, um, I'm going to just refer to some of these and uh, you'll be able to better explain them uh, than I will. But one example he gave me was Dexcellent. And the other, the other uh, couple here was um, Zyrum and the, the PCSK nines. So can you, can you just talk to a little bit about, you know, those, those examples um, and, and how they might be currently working and how you would work with an employer to, um, to drive lower net costs. Okay. Well, we'll go in the order that you called them out there. Dexalant is a is a really good drug for, you know, it's in the category of proton pump inhibitors. It reduces acid that your body's producing. Most people are using it for reflux. Uh, if you have an ulcer, they're you know they're good to help treat an ulcer as well. Good drug. <clears throat> Been around for a few years now. In that category of uh, proton pump inhibitors, there's probably nine or ten different drugs in there. Some of them are very, very familiar to almost everybody. Nexium, Prilosec, Prevacid, you know, those were, and Prilosec, Prevacid, and Nexium were the first three big block, blockbuster drugs in that category. You know, there's a couple of more in there. Now, I don't know the exact price of Dexalant today, but let's just use $200 as a placeholder. It's, it's in that range. There are probably five drugs in that category that do the same thing as Dexalant from a patient care standpoint, there's there's no literature, there's no article in the literature that says that that any one of those drugs is any better or worse than the others. So there's five drugs in that category that cost less than $20 a month. 
And so I would just <clears throat> contend if, <clears throat> Michael, if you came into my pharmacy, um, I wouldn't let you leave my pharmacy with an excellent prescription. <laughs> or certainly not without telling you, you know, here's, here's the difference, you know, you know, I'm, I don't take this. I wouldn't recommend it to my mother. I wouldn't recommend it to, to you or my one of my kids. There's no reason for some combination of you and your employer to spend two hundred dollars on something when y'all can split the cost of a you know pantoprazole prescription. It might be sixteen dollars. Yep. Yep. And and I think that you know, like you said, there's a lot of you know good people working in this industry um, that you know, are, are caught up in the complexities. And so if I have a high deductible health plan and I go into a pharmacy, you know, a lot of times the, the, the pharmacist does ask, you know, um, Hey, there's a, there's a, a lower cost alternative to this, you know, would you be interested? And, and I think that does happen when people are on a high deductible health plan and they, they make it known to the pharmacist, but you know, there's a lot of plans out there where there's fixed dollar copays and the copay, the, the patient's liability is the same regardless of, you know, the drug cost is $20 copay. And so I think it's in those situations where the consumer is actually insulated from the actual cost. Right. Um, you know, that, that sort of conversation is probably not taking place. But having that information so that the consumer can make an informed decision, if you will, is a key part of what we're trying to do. You know, there's not, um, it's not something that everybody, you know, has the information readily available to them. Um, you know, they're trying to you know, save money. They're asking for a generic, but I would just say that, you know, like the case of the therapeutic substitution, there's very, very few people that would even know <clears throat> they ask about them. Um, of course, about the therapeutic equivalent. They just they're just not aware of it. No, and they're not they're not trained to because they're they're going to trust what their doctor prescribed to them. Yep. You know, very very few people are, are uh, equipped with the mentality that they should walk into a pharmacy and be asking questions about other therapeutic alternatives. You know, so like I say, at the end of the day, you know, that program will save an employer, you know, 12 to 17 percent is where probably 80 percent of the clients save is in that area. That specialty pharmacy program will typically save someone, you know, 20 to 25 percent of their specialty drug cost. You know, so if you combine the two of those together, you know, 20 to 30 percent of the total pharmacy spend <clears throat> is what most of our clients will will realize out of that. So when you when you talk about that, that gets people's attention. You know how you execute it and which exact program they want to use. You know is a key piece of this because it has to work for their employees. Um, education is certainly a key piece of that. So that's a big deal. Sure, sure. You now you mentioned Zyram. <clears throat> Zyram is a stimulant drug. Um, it, it is <clears throat> one of many drugs that's used for narcolepsy. Um, it's the only drug that's used for cataplexy. Cataplexy is a <clears throat> much more ser serious condition, you know, sleep disorder, but it's the only drug out there used for cataplexy. So the fact that it's also indicated for narcolepsy, we see a lot of uh, physicians that will, not a lot, but a few physicians that will prescribe it. Well, Zyrem costs <clears throat> upstream of $60,000 a year. There are a number of other drugs you can use for narcolepsy that cost you know, thirty dollars a month, fifty dollars a month. Even some of the extended release ones are, you know, less than that, less less than a hundred dollars a month. So, you know, five or six thousand dollars a month versus less than a hundred dollars a month. Now, when we do a prior authorization for Zyrem, Zyrem would be a specialty drug. Um, it was very, very rare that you ever see a cataplexy, you know, patient. But when you have someone like that, they need it. But we 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 don't ever approve Zyrem for 
for narcolepsy. When we look at a plan's drug use, and, and you see the list of their most expensive, you sort it by cost. If Zyram's on there, odds are that they, they really didn't need to be, their, their employee didn't need to be having that drug. <clears throat> and most people never thought about it because, you know, if, if you there again, if you go back to FDA approval, mm-hmm. it's a good drug. It's effective for narcolepsy. Patient has narcolepsy. Why would you not want them to have it? Well, because it costs $60,000 a year instead of, you know, $1,000 a year. That's that's why you shouldn't use it. So so one thing I want to note here, and, and I think you alluded to it earlier, is that, you know, an employer's PBM has to agree to carve out the formulary management and prior authorization services to Rx results. So will all, will all PBMs allow for you to take over these services? Um, and why or why not? Well, the answer is no, that they they won't. Um, there's a couple of large PBMs that won't let anybody use a custom formulary. Um, sh- I mean, it's certainly the the bottom line of that is because it costs them a lot of money. Uh, <clears throat> it disrupts their rebate contracts. Um, you know, like in my the Zyram example or the Dexalan example, both of those drugs produce significant rebates. Those lower cost alternatives produce zero rebates, but <clears throat> You know the you know the six thousand dollars a month versus the hundred. You know, would you rather spend six thousand dollars and get a ten percent rebate, or would you rather spend a hundred dollars and get no rebate? And it's just that simple. <clears throat> I saw a report the other day. We've we've got fourteen PBMs that we currently work with, and probably been a half a dozen others that we've had clients with that you know changed something they were doing, changed PBMs themselves. But we've got fourteen that were that are very cooperative with us right now, and it works very smoothly. There's four or five large PBMs out there that don't want programs like ours around. And so they, they make it very difficult to um, to administer. I had a, an email just, just before we got on this call, Michael, that mm-hmm. uh, it was a comment from a, a large carrier-owned PBM. And they don't want us doing business with this group. So about six weeks ago, they said we had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, you know, a mutual one. We do that every time. You know, I, I sent one out yesterday. Somebody signed it. They can't send it back to me. I signed it, sent them a sure. fully executed copy. You know, we were 45 minutes into the process. Before this group would allow us, before they would even send us the data to do an analysis up front, we had to fill out this 40-question information with documentation on a bunch of them, of how we do our processes and this and that, and you know, got into things that you would see in a data use agreement. All that just is a roadblock. To, and I bet most people that look at it say, "Look, I don't need your I don't need your information that you know that badly." But the crazy thing about it is, we've got four clients with that with that carrier with that PBM today. So you know, we're doing all this today, back and forth. And so they told the client, well, you know, we, we need this on new, new paper for this. This is a new process that we've just put in place. And so they, they had all this stuff. And then the email I got today was they were, <clears throat> they were asking specifically what we needed, which, you know, they're going to they got an attachment I can send to anybody on that. You know, and we, we do you know, 30 or 40, 50 of those analyses a month, you know, from all kinds of different PBMs. But the, but the sad thing about that is, I mean, it makes it hard on us. But it's the employer's data, and and they're making people go through all these hoops yep. so the employer can have their data sent to somebody that they want to take a look at their program, and it, that's just to me it's that's unconscionable. You know, it's um, the employer shouldn't shouldn't have to be shouldn't have to put up with that. So that's a lot to be said. But the re- the reason is at the bottom of the, all of this resistance 
you know, from some of the PBMs is that it's going to cost them money, and it typically goes to that rebate amount, and they don't get rebates on those you know, 400 alternatives that we had to those very expensive drugs. Well, I, I think, you know, if an employer is interested, they ask for, for data for an analysis, and the incumbent PBM is unwilling or, you know, putting up roadblocks, it should probably give them, you know, cause to pause and, and right. maybe think about their partnership. We've got you know, just Michael, under- Michael, there's a lot of that going on today. And one of the things that, I mean, this has just come up in, in conversations, I'd say, in the last, I mean, I'd heard some of it before, but it's really intensified, is the whole concept of these bundles. You know, someone says, well, we're going to do your medical, we're going to do your stop loss, we're going to do your PBM, we're going to do you know, all of this. And, and you're, you're supposedly getting a better price because of all the efficiencies associated with it. But if someone says, well, we think we're going to carve out our PBM. Well, if you do that, we won't let you count pharmacy claims towards your stop loss, and we're going to have to charge you an additional admin fee. And um, <clears throat> had a broker down in Georgia was on the phone when, when this carrier said that. <clears throat> and he said, no, the broker says, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. You're not going to do the PBM work, <clears throat> and you want an additional $30,000 a month? For not doing the work, he said, "I don't think so." <clears throat> and so they did what you just said, and they they changed they changed carriers, you know, networks, PBMs, everything at first of the next year. Or so, but that but the whole bundle and people unbundling things is something that we're seeing an awful lot of. And um, and there again, that, that's another one of those things when you see the symptoms like that, like these little companies popping up to address it. When you see people that are wanting to unbundle, <clears throat> that's just an expression of. The bundle's not working for me, so I'm looking for something else to do. So I think there's going to be a lot of activity in that in that regard over the next couple of years. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly with that. So um, what's the cost for an employer to sign up with, with Rx results? You know, we do a couple of different things. Most of them on the formulary side or on a per-claim basis. Uh, we, we can do that on a per-employee or per-member basis, either one. We On the specialty, we charge that on a per per member per month basis is what we what we charge for that. Um, one of the interesting features about our program, you've, with our formulary and specialty, we'll, we'll guarantee that if you use those two programs, that we'll guarantee you we'll save you twice what you paid us. And if we don't, we'll write you a check for the difference. <laughs> We've actually never had a, an ROI that was less than five to one. Um, typically, it's in a you know, eight to 10 to one ROI is what somebody gets. So, you know, the, the price fluctuates a little bit, certainly on the you know, the size of the group, if somebody buys more than one product, you know, we have some savings by just having one implementation and one data file and all that. So we pass the that savings along to the to the employer because, you know, it's, it's so the bundle or our bundle, if you will, our, our two things that you could buy are cheaper than if you bought both of them on the cart. All right. So <clears throat> I like that. So you're so confident in what you guys are doing that you're willing to guarantee a return on investment of two to one. That's correct. All right. I think, I think one, I think that's great. I also think it's important. I think, um, we need to, we need to start seeing vendors and companies in the healthcare space start to do that because if, if they can't be accountable for results, you know, are, are, are they the right partner? You know, and, and that is if you're, if you're tired of the status quo and you're looking to do something different, um, well then, you know, I, I think employers should be looking at, you know, vendors in the marketplace who are willing to, you know, offer guarantees of sorts mm-hmm. because right right now a lot of that doesn't exist. Right. Well, you know, we're we're moving as a as a healthcare community, moving to risk sharing. You know, the providers are doing more of that because of the Affordable Care Act. 
I think that's a really good feature of that. I think the fee-for-service has been flawed for a long time, but you know, the employer has certainly a lion's share of the risk. The employees share some of it, maybe more of it now with high-deductible plans. The stop-loss and reinsurance carriers certainly have some of that. I think the, the other folks you know, in the model also need to share some of that risk. And I think when you do that, you end up with everybody kind of on the same side of the table, if you will, and you know, are all trying to accomplish the same thing. You know, I, I do caution that the, the, the risk needs to be for cost and quality. You know, you, you don't want to tip it over because you've done poor quality, but you sure. can, you know, there's lots of quality measures out there and you need to keep your eye on that, on that ball as well. All right. Uh, Terry, are there, are, are you guys focused on any, um, employer, um, industries or, or, or niches or sectors, um, or, you know, are, are you guys, uh, you know, focused on just working with large self-insured employers? No, that there's really not any, you know, specific, you know, sector that we, that we focus on. We've got, got quite a few hospital clients, you know, we've got trucking companies, we've got poultry, pro, you know, production companies, we've got quite a few municipalities, actually probably more of those than anybody, maybe hospitals, maybe more, but close to it. Um, you know, we've got large retail establishments. Um, you know, there's, so there's not any particular niche in there. So it's um, it's just anybody that's that's interested in doing this. You know, we've got a couple of small health plans that we do this this work with as well. Mm-hmm. And a new kind of new area for us is the whole area of the of the carriers on the stop loss and reinsurance. Um, <clears throat> we may end up. Those are maybe three-pronged relationships because typically the carrier doesn't have a direct relationship with the employer that's coming through the you know, the broker, the consultant. But if if we're in place, you know, we've got I guess three carriers now that are actually giving discounts on both spec and ag. If if we're if we're in place, so it doesn't it's not a specific contract between the you know, the carrier and them. But if if they will you know have us in place, then they will give the folks a discount and. Some of those discussions are centered around can they give some benefit on the rates as well as risk corridors and things like that, maybe even the attachment points. You know, there's some things that can be done there. And what we're learning from the discussions we're having with the, uh, that industry is that historically carriers have not had pharmacy claims. You know, you might have had a hemophilia patient or you know, something like that, but it was unusual. Mm-hmm. And the traditional things that reinsurance carriers have done to mitigate their risk really don't work on pharmacy. And so when we talk about things like the specialty prior auth on the front end, you know, before therapy is initiated, you know, you can do something. You know, a retrospective review, you know, nine months into it, well, you know, it's not appropriate to change that patient's therapy in most cases. And, you know, it's so anyway, traditional things don't work. But I think you're going to see a lot of changes in that area. You know, we've got say several of these folks that are we're in active discussions with and some that are actually giving kind of the early stages of some benefits just for having us in place. Well, I think that makes sense. I mean, if, if you look at what at the result of, you know, the increase in specialty drug utilization is, you know, today we can have, um, you know, the annual cost for uh, specialty drug utilization completely, um, you know, outweigh a traditional inpatient hospitalization. No question about it. No, ep- no question episode. About it. So from a lar- so if I'm a, a stop loss carrier and I'm concerned about, you know, large claim risk, well, you know, the RX exposure is much higher today than it was before. Yep, no question about it. All right, Terry, this has been um a great call. If there's if there's one question that I, I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? Um you know, we covered a lot. I think there's there are a lot of 
components to this, but it, at the simplest place of it, I would say that to the extent that an employer and the people that they have hired, broker, consultant, you know, to work on their behalf, I would say to drive the process and to the extent that you can move away from responding to somebody else's proposal and you defining what you want to have done, the way you want to have it done, and then you find vendors, you know, partners that will do business the way you want it done, I think that'll get you a long way down the path of kind of transforming your pharmacy benefit. You know, this this history of, you know, you, you, even if you do an RFP, they send you a proposal. Well, this is how they want to do it. You, you tell them, we want this to be done independently. We want to do this. You know, whatever those things are that are important to you, mm-hmm. you know, drive the process. Don't don't just react to somebody else's proposal because I guarantee you their proposal is good for them. It may or may not be good for you, <laughs> but um, that's, that's, that's something I would tell everyone to, to think about. Fair enough. I think that's a great piece of advice. So how can people interested in your product and service get in touch with you uh, and get more information other than obviously working through their respective broker consultant? You know, and that, that certainly is our, our preferred way to do it. You know, our, our website, rxresults.com, has a lot of you know information about us and kind of a kind of a broad base. A lot of things we talked about here and has our contact information on there. So that's that's a good way to do it. And certainly, you know, ask your broker and consultant about that. And you know we'd be happy to begin that dialogue. And our our whole process is built around trying to understand what that employer wants. You know, they, if if they have a need that's not being met, they have a concern that you know. And something we hear a lot of is our pharmacy costs are up. And we're either going to have to reduce benefits or take money from another department in the company just to be able to sustain this. And that's causing all kinds of problems, you know, company-wide. And so whatever those concerns are, we, our job is to try to find out what, what it is, what problem are you trying to fix, how are you trying to do that. And then we'll craft solutions that we will execute in a way that also is consistent with the way you want to do business. So we spend a lot of time on the front end understanding you know, the employer and their needs and, you know, listening to their concerns because, you know, everybody has some overlap, but everybody also has some unique things that either they want to do or they don't want to do or how serious the problem is or what extent they're willing to go to. So hit us up on the website and we'll start the dialogue and see if we can isolate the problem and put together a solution for you. All right. I love it. Well, Terry, on, on behalf of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for, for taking time out of your schedule to join us. I think it's been a, a great dialogue, and I, I hope it's been uh, you know educational for our listeners. Well, I hope so, too, and I appreciate the opportunity. So you have a good day, and we'll look forward to our next conversation. All right, and to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we will sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Google Play so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Rx Results website and contact information. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast.